will house prices only fall 30% and NATO's madness will doom us all. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 12th of November. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. So in this week's Citizens Report, we're going to discuss the dramatic turnaround in a very high-profile pundit's view on the Australian housing bubble, who is now predicting it's going to fall. The question is by how much. And the war danger just gets closer and closer and closer, and we're going to keep talking about it until we stop it. So first, before we begin, though, um, just to remind you, if you like the show, please hit the like button because that helps us get, the, get it around. Um, remember to subscribe if you're not a subscriber and hit that bell icon for notifications and anything we refer to where we say information will, will be provided, you can find it in the, um, the information down below. Um, also, Craig, before we begin, just a quick update on our campaign on the Sterling First issue. So the, the inquiry is underway and we've, uh, it's going, so far it's shaping up very well. We achieved the first uh, uh, completion this week, which was the submissions, and um, a lot of submissions have been made. And I must say, uh, we've seen some of the submissions from the victims, many of the victims, and they are dynamite. They're powerful, powerful submissions that the politicians will not be able to ignore. So we're looking forward to how that shapes up in the hearings next week. There will be hearings next week. So this is Friday. The hearings are going to be on Tuesday, the 16th, and, and um, Thursday, the 18th, next week. Um, some important people we know have been called to testify, including Mrs. Denise Braley of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Association, who is the person who, um, for no gain of her own, went in there to help the victims and bring this whole scandal to light. So she's going to be able to testify, which is great. And I want to just mention, I've had a chance to look through ASIC's submission because this is an inquiry into Sterling First and ASIC and we want this to be a largest, the beginning of a larger spotlight on ASIC, the corporate regulator. Because a lot of, I mean, you know, you've got, as we often say, there were 10,000 people made, um, bank victims made submissions to the Banking Royal Commission, 10,000. The Australian Financial Complaints Authority, AFCA, which is supposed to be the first port of call for financial complaints. Now they report they get 70,000 complaints per year. Not just 70,000, 70,000 per year. Now that reflects a certain way that the financial system is regulated in this country. Mm. And that reflects the, the, the shaping of ASIC and the people who run ASIC. Um, because they actually do not proactively police, right? And it even comes out in this report. I've read through, there's a timeline ASIC provides um, relating that, that lists out everything it did in relation to the Sterling First uh, case um, from 2016 onwards, right? And if you go through the timeline, look, you, you think, oh, well, it looks like ASIC's doing its job. There's lots of activity by ASIC. It's, it's, it's not ignoring Sterling First, right? There's lots of activity. Um, but when you look closer, one of the things you realise, there's a lot of activity for sure. There's a lot of bureaucratic activity, but there's no urgency. And while they are asking questions and getting answers from the company and from the directors, etc. It, it looks like no one's paying any attention to the fact that this is a company 
that while they're looking at it, it's still being allowed to prey on vulnerable elderly people. And, and they were able to collect millions and millions and millions of dollars from those vulnerable elderly people while ASIC was looking at them. And now ASIC, um, it went, once, it's gone, once it went bust in 2019, ASIC's attitude is, let me read it out to you, Point seven, the last point of its executive summary, while there is always room for improvements to the financial services regulatory regime and how, is it, how it is administered by ASIC, sometimes investment vehicles fail and consumers suffer substantial or complete losses. Mm. The other, that, could, that could be summed up in one word, Craig. Tough. Yeah. Robert, look, I, I think you know, we're not just complaining about the regulator here. This is part of our whole suite of policies that we're pushing for, which is vital for the Australian economy. The first, you've got to take it from the top down. We've been campaigning for 30 years for a national bank. We need to have a bank that's strong and can re-regulate the entire banking system. Yep. Right? That they're and afraid part, of. Part of that is going to be an Australia Post Bank, right, which we've been talking about a lot. Then you've got the need then you have the need to regulate the banks through Glass Steagall, separating out retail from commercial banking, protect the banking system protect people's deposits. Keep ordinary people away from risky activity. Exactly right. And then the, the, the next level, of course, is to have effective regulators that protect that entire system. What do we have now is we have a system of predatory banks that are exposed in the Royal Commission. We have weak regulators that are allowing people to be sucking into these schemes. There's no reason for this whatsoever, Robbie, and that's why we encourage yep. our members and our people that watch this show Get involved in with the Citizens Party in order to be able to fight these policies that we have at the present time and put an alternative regime of good policies in place. No, exactly. Um, because, as we're about to get into our first subject, uh, it could be not before time. We're, so far, we've been talking about a financial system um, in normal circumstances, and that's bad enough for the people who are victims of it. How does the financial system work in a crash? And that's the big issue. So the first subject today, will house prices only fall 30%? I hate to shock people, um, but this is now something that everyone should be seriously looking at. And the reason why is because the world is facing the spectre of inflation. Now, Craig, they're trying to explain it away. And I'm going to read some quotes in a minute. They're trying to explain away. The, there's, there's two types of inflation. You can print too much money too quickly, Right and, and that, there's always a certain amount of money emitted in the economy. But you've also got the supply chain. Supply chain. Uh, inflation, Robert, which, you know, you're seeing all these breakdowns in goods being delivered, ships not being able to get into ports, exactly. you know, being shut down because of COVID and so forth, and this is creating actual pressures on prices because of scarcities and so forth. And they're hoping, though, that if, it, if that's the cause of the inflation, then that will be temporary. Yeah. Because if it's the money printing side, then that can get away from you before you know it. Problem is, Craig, we've had the supply chain disruption from COVID, but we've also had a decade of massive, massive money printing. And outside of China, which put its money printing into the means of production, right? And, and, I, and I don't even want to call it money printing. They invested credit into expanding their productive capability and infrastructure that allows the delivery of goods. Mm. Outside of that, the money printing in the rest of the world has gone to Wall Street, the City of London banks for speculation, right? It has to have an impact at a certain point. Um, and of course, one of the ways we've seen it is in, uh, definitely anyway, is in house prices, right? It, it, and especially in a country like Australia. Um, 
So this week, in our Australian Alert Service, uh, which if you haven't ever received a copy of, you can, you can um, click on the link and, and order yourself a free copy. Um, but it's also, we really encourage people to subscribe to this. This is, we can't ever do justice on the show to these subjects. It's explained in detail in the Alert Service. You know, there's an investigative team that puts a lot of work into this. But Richard Barden has an article this week in the Alert Service, and it's called RBA's, that is Reserve Bank's Inflation Conundrum Spells Doom for the Housing Bubble. And I want, I want to read a, just a few quotes uh, from that. Uh, on 29 October, after a massive sell-off of Australian government bonds the previous day, the Australian Financial Review reported that, quote, investors are betting rates could begin lifting as soon as February next year, while most economists are tipping late 2022 or first half of 2023 with the potential for the cash rate to hit 2%, 2 by late 2024. That's 2% up from what it is now, which is 0.1%. But the banks are already listing interest rates, probably without the Reserve Bank doing anything. Yes. I mean, that's, look, you just got to acknowledge that's where it, that's the direction of the pressure at the moment. It's going up. Now, the bigger, the, the backdrop is the inflation question because the way it works is the, the central banks around the world are given a job to control inflation and they have a lever to do that and the lever is interest rates, right? Infl if inflation's low, they can lower interest rates and, and um, raise inflation. Inflation's high, they raise interest rates to lower inflation because the lower the interest rates, the more money there is being allowed to be lent into the economy. There's a, anyway, it's, a, it's, it's the general understanding of how it works and this is the great lever of the Reserve Bank. So the question is, is how serious is this inflation? Will these interest rates have to keep rising so that you're talking about multiples of, of current rates, right? And then what is the flow on to the, to the housing rates, of course? So Josh Frydenberg says no. In fact, the headline um, of the Financial Review had him saying, don't panic, right? And he's the treasurer of Australia. Of course he'd say that. He says, quote, by no means is the inflation genie out of the bottle as there remains some spare capacity in the economy, particularly in the labour market, and many of the contributing factors are expected to be transitory. Sounds like famous last words to me. The global and domestic outlook remains positive despite the major shock caused by the, pand the pandemic with macroeconomic settings expected to normalise over time. So that's Josh Frydenberg's view. The problem is, as we know, you know how, do you, how do you know a politician's lying, Craig? Yeah, the lips are the lips are moving. So even if he's sincere, people are going to have doubts about what Josh Frydenberg's saying. So I want to introduce another character into the mix now. Before you do that, Robbie, just remember, we're only six months out from a federal election. Yes. And if interest rates do rise because the RBA is forced to, that will spell doom for the Liberal Party because people are going to start yep. to look at their back pocket and hip pocket and say, what's going on here? Yep. And this is what Josh Frydenberg and the Liberal Party yep. are terrified about because we've seen it before. The RBA is not locked into necessarily protecting the Liberal government. They'll, they'll do what they think they have to do to cover themselves. Yeah, of course. So it, well, it, well, if they're ever caught doing favours to a Liberal government, they will, that will be big trouble down the track. So that, that, that's a significant element, only six yeah. months out from an election. No, for sure. So who should we listen to other than Josh Frydenberg? Now, now this doesn't prove the point, but I'll tell you what, the person I'm about to tell you about, um, you better pay attention because it's none other than Christopher Joy. And Christopher Joy is a former RBA economist. Some viewers may recognise the name. 
He's a former RBA economist. He is actually one of the most well-connected guys in Australia's financial system, um, full stop. He is incredibly, incredibly well-connected. And until now, he's been the biggest naysayer to the doomsayers, right? So famously, had a, he had a debate with Steve Keane in, uh, at the time of the GFC in t- 2008 because Steve Keane had rightly predicted house prices would crash as we were predicting at the time, Craig, and people like Martin North, who was then with um, uh, JP Morgan Fujitsu Consulting, were predicting. However, what we couldn't predict, that Christopher Joy could, and that's how well-connected he is, we couldn't predict the extent to which governments would go to stop it from happening. Mm. We, we accepted their free market framework, right? By their metric of how the economy should run, house prices should have crashed. So... Joy, though, could predict that because he's so well-connected. He's very well-connected. I, I can't emphasise that enough. Anyway, um, long-time viewers of this show may remember that, that in 2019, Christopher Joy famously had a debate with the economist John Adams. Now, John is someone that we have quoted a lot over the years, even before we knew him, um, because John, from 2016 onwards, started warning of economic Armageddon. That's a term that that John Adams became synonymous with, economic Armageddon, based on the amount of housing debt in Australia and how unsustainable it was, right? And we agreed with his analysis um, completely. So in 2019, just before the federal election, they had this debate on the, um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a Sky News show called Money Matters at the time, right? Anyway, so I want to play a clip of that where the host and I, 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 I apologise, I actually forget his name temporarily, I'm going to kick myself later. But the host um, is asking John a question, and John, to, so that John explains his thesis of a crash, of an impending crash, and then you'll see Joy's, Christopher Joy's response to that. So this is what Joy was saying in 2019, play the clip. John, can you explain the link, because my viewers, you know, can hear the, the debt thing. What's the link then between debt uh, the economy, recession, house prices. Sure, sure. Okay, so so the question is, if we've got this, we've got the biggest debt bubble in the history of the country, where's the debt? The debt is in property. Um, so uh, there's the debt b- uh, bubbles right across the world um, and, and in different economies that's situated in different areas. So the debt bubble um, is in the housing sector. Mm. And, and what I've argued is, so I've written several columns about economic Armageddon. Armageddon comes when the debt uh, represents a systemic crisis to the Australian economy. Um, so, so there's a number of scenarios I've written about, uh, and some of them revolve around if we default on the debt, so for example, if households can't pay their debts and the banks get in trouble, this could lead to extremely sharp falls on property from, from 40 to 80%, depending if the banks survive. Um, if, the if the banks survive. If the banks survive. No, uh, there are scenarios, just like in 1892, when the banks did not survive, the level of house price falls is even more extreme than, say, Martin North. But um, if, if the um, Reserve Bank, if APRA, if the government steps in with macro intervention, um, then the question is, well, they could stabilise house prices um, and, and that potentially could be, um, uh, the falls could be lower than some of the more extreme forecasts, but that comes at a cost. And the cost is the value of the dollar, uh, given, given the amount of uh, foreign debt we have, because once our international creditors lose confidence in our ability to meet the foreign debt, the dollar, you know, the, the dollar will crash. So effectively what I'm saying is Armageddon is either, for Australia, a housing crash or a dollar crash, mm. uh, but, 
but we can't get out of this problem because the amount of debt in the economy is, is unparalleled in, in, in Australian history. Okay, Chris, you've heard his, his kick-off arguments. How, how do you want to respond? Do you want to say your story first sure, or you yeah. want to respond to... Yeah, no, I'll just kind of respond to John's comments. Um, okay. I haven't read his material before. This is the first time we've met. Yeah. Um, but a, a few points, and maybe we could bring up the chart as well okay. um, <clears throat> that I've provided you with. But I guess the first point uh, that I think John misses is it's not just about debt. It's about the serviceability of that debt. Mm. It's about incomes and interest rates, right? And this is a crucial point, and it's why folks like John, experts in search of a headline, have been relentlessly wrong over the last couple of decades in relation to Australia. And we saw Steve Keen in the GFC, and I debated him in 2008. He said house prices were going to fall by 40%. I said they'd fall 5 to 10%. Right? They fell 8%. Uh, Jeremy Grantham from GMO came out in 2010. One of the smart guys of the investment world. Came out in 2010, said the Aussie housing bubble was the biggest in history. I bet him $100 million against the CoreLogic Index for a three-year trade from November 2010 to 2013. If he'd taken that trade, of course, he didn't put his money where his mouth was. He would have had to have paid me $4.1 million, right? House prices appreciated over that. Now, your chart's up now. <coughs> and this is, this, is a, this is the key point. So, so John has completely overlooked, overlooked, he hasn't referred to at all, incomes or, or interest rates. So that, that, that's, that's, that's what, you know, go back and watch the show if you want, right? We'll put the link below. You can watch the whole thing. But that explains both men's positions right, quite well. Um, and again, uh, after that, uh, as Joy predicted, the government, again, did a lot of stuff to try and prop the property market up. Right, we've documented that, but that was that was Joy, and as you can see, he's a pretty arrogant guy. He was he was quite insulting of John, right? An expert in search of a headline, etc. Joy knows everything, so and he quoted the Core Logic Index, Craig, and that's I must like the one thing you need to know about when he makes a prediction. He took a, he, he 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 bet someone. He challenged someone to a bet based on the Core Logic Index. The reason that guy who didn't take the bet probably wisely is because. Christopher Joy invented the Core Logic Index. It's his, um, uh, uh, you know, calculus that d generates the index, right? And th that's been an issue for a long time as well. But anyway, that aside, so that was Joy then, right? No, no, nothing to worry about. There's not going to be a crash because why? Because it comes down to incomes and interest rates. That's what he said. Well, he would say on what I'm about to read, he'll, he would say is perfectly consistent with that. But it's an acknowledgement that something else is now starting to happen, right? So let me just read the, 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 um, the quote. This is on the 29th of October. Joy wrote this. Um, he said, The normalisation of Australian inflation and the Reserve Bank of Australia's cash rate with it is a game changer for everything. Equities, bonds, house prices and portfolio construction. Everyone needs to go back to first principles and re-evaluate their decisioning juxtaposed against a world in which short and long-term interest rates could be a lot higher. Let me continue. The consequence of core inflation moving into the target band is that the RBA will probably start lifting its cash rate in the second half of 2022 or early 2023. Joy wrote, but the existential question, he went on, is where the RBA and the US Federal Reserve's neutral cash rates lie, which is another way of saying equilibrium. Most economists think, think the local neutral rate is between 2 and 4%. If this is correct, it would mean that the RBA has to raise the cash rate to about 3% to ensure it is neither contractionary 
nor stimulatory. His own view, Joy added, is that the RBA's neutral rate would turn out to be much lower, about 1% to 1.5%, but that point would seem to be largely moot because, quote, even 100 basis points of increase, which, is, which would be from what we have now to 1.1%, would have profound consequences for asset pricing and would probably force house prices, for example, to correct about 15 to 25%. In fact, the RBA's own house price forecasting model, which we have replicated and refined, implies a larger drawdown, which means crash, of about 33%. And, and that's based on what he's prepared to say could be just a 100 basis point interest rate rise. If it goes to the 2 to 4% that some of the other economists are predicting that he quoted, forget 30% for house prices crashing, right? Now, again, I hope people understand the significance of this coming from Christopher Joy, the big bull of 2019 and, and the decade up to 2019, house prices are fine. Now the bull is the bear. He looks like a bear, <laughs> right? The, he's now the bear saying 30% could be on the cards. And the question is, as we said in the headline, will it stop there? So Craig, we have long said, long said, this crash is inevitable. Whenever it happens, what do we need to be doing? We don't wanna, we're not, we don't raise a subject like this for our show to give people insider tips so they can make their financial bets on a housing crash. We are raising, we always focus on this because how does our economy function, right? How does our economy function? It's already dysfunctional with house prices. They are way too high, they're too, too expensive, but how do they function in a crash? What do we need to be doing now to reorganize the economy? Oh, Robbie, that's a, that's a huge question when you think about it because what you're going to have to do is look at this as, a, as an existential crisis. It would be for many, many people not being able to pay their mortgage. So you've got to come back to what's primary. And that's going to be initially keeping yep. people in their homes, not letting the society fracture, you know, kids being thrown out of school, p parents suffering from the, the financial pressures of providing for their families. So you've got to start from a principle first and foremost. You say, well, what are we going to do then? Well, you have to keep people in their home. Well, who's going to do that? The banks are not going to do that. They might, yeah. might, might go along with a moratorium, but you need a facility to do that. There's plenty of history examples, examples in history. You know, for example, you take the Roosevelt era where, era, era where they had their homeowners protection scheme where they actually created a facility to protect homeowners. Well, we're going to need that. And the only yeah. way you can do that is through what we have written legislation for, which is a national bank. You actually have to be able to provide a facility to protect people by providing for the debt that they've incurred. So there's a, there's a national bank. That's the first thing you would do. There's many other things you would need to do just too. Before you go on, Craig, just on that, so you, what you're talking about with the national bank, the specific of that is the debt has to be written down yes. without people losing their homes and without the institutions going under. And only a national bank could... F now, that, that actually has been done multiple times in the past, including in Australia, in, in, a, in, in um, specific areas in recent years, in not, not too long ago. But the scale of what we're talking about, only a national bank could finance that kind of operation. You, you've got to have effectively a debt moratorium, Robbie. You've got to look at the debts that householders have incurred and say, is this reasonable or not? So you have to have a whole facility within yep. inside a structure to be able to do that. Now, why would we do that? Well, the free market is a joke. It's only a free market when the free marketeers want it to be 
Otherwise, they ignore those principles and they do what they want. Well, the Wall Street banks got bailed out in 2008 and then they turned around and they forced 12 million people out onto the streets as they mass foreclosed on their homes. That's the free market, not the free market for them, socialism for them, capitalism for the people. And that's why we, you know, we need to have a facility like a national bank. That's why we've been campaigning so hard for it for so long, Robbie, because this is the only backstop we can have. You, there is no structure at the moment in our no. economy for this. So a bank, a national bank, a uh, debt moratorium for not just households but productive industries as well because you can't allow your economy to crash. So you've got to look after your farmers, you've got to look after your manufacturers and your producers. So you're going to have to have a moratorium for them And as we well. need to shift employment away from the construction sector and housing and real estate agents, etc., and in into sustainable, something that's economically sustainable, but productive for our economy. And that means large, you, you have to have a facility like a national bank to create credit necessary to direct into the economy to be able to employ large numbers of people and quickly. Because, you know, we've got, we've got plenty of infrastructure sure. projects that we can develop in this country that could be funded quickly if you had a national bank. At the end of the day, the question about credit, Robbie, is not about money. People have got this idea about money and credit, they're simultaneous. No. Credit has to do with creating assets for the future. Where you make a decision, you have a vision, we want to build this. And at the end of the day, you end up with an asset. You've changed the physical economy, the, the landscape. You've built infrastructure. That changes the economy. Yep. Money doesn't do that, but credit does because it's, it's fulfilling the, 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 the vision. And that's what, that's what the credit is designed to do. This requires, look, how many politicians in the Australian Parliament today have an idea about how you can rebuild the country from the point of view of tackling it from building it from what we call a physical economic point of view, building infrastructure, creating jobs, creating a manufacturing sector? Well, I will say, to answer that question, very few, however, more than has existed for decades. There is a growing chorus in the, in the parliament of people as diverse as Senator Jared Rennick from the LNP, um, Matt Canavan from the National Party is starting to say so, Malcolm Roberts and One Nation have been saying so for as long as they've been in there, and even the Greens, Senator Peter Wish-Wilson has been calling for this kind of development bank approach as well. There was a parliamentary inquiry last year um, into uh, foreign investment, etc., which recommended a development bank, right? And there is, you can expect more on that front. So, and that's from, that's, that's after three or four decades where nobody wanted it. We just privatised all that and stuff. And it's not just, you know, the calling for a national bank is not just here in Australia, Robbie. In the United States, we know the National Infrastructure Bank is being called for and it's got bipartisan support in the United States. So they want to create trillions of dollars of credit in order to be able to fund the economy, which the, the, the infrastructure is collapsing over there. So this is not something new. Yep. It's developing, and that's what we've got to look at here in Australia. You can't go with these collapsing, uh, bankrupt policies, economic rationalism we've had for the last 40 years. They're finished. And as we've seen with this pandemic, with the health care system, the, the ability for public health, it's been decimated from yep. 40 years of you know, takedown. And that's, that's across the economy. Yep. So government has to step in, establish a national bank, establish, establish the safeguards necessary through a national bank in order to protect the economy so that you protect the general welfare. And that's the starting point, Robbie. And look, it's a huge task, 
But unless people grasp that first, and there are politicians in the parliament, in the parliament that understand that concept, understand the concept of the general welfare, and if you give them a climate where there's more and more support for this, they will move in that direction. Yep, so take this warning seriously because, as I said, when it's Christopher Joy starting to say that, um, you know, some, you know, there's big things afoot. I doubt if it's, you know, they, they're desperately hoping the inflation is going to be uh, temporary. I cannot see how that's possible at all. And this is what's now on the cards. The doomsday scenario, economic doomsday scenario, we're going to talk about a different kind of doomsday soon. Economic doomsday scenario we've been predicting for a while, but it means we can preempt it with the kind of policies Craig's just been talking about. So let's get on to the other doomsday scenario, Craig, which is frankly um, absolutely terrifying, but it's why we're raising it. NATO's madness will doom us all. And what we're talking about is, again, something that's been published in the uh, Australian Alert Service, but with the added development of what Paul Keating did this week, just to, as a reality check, which we applaud. Um, but believe it, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty... Organisation. It's not NACO, Robbie, with the China stuffed in there, right? It's NATO. <laughs> NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. That's what NATO stands for. Well, NATO, and, and NATO was, was set up, as um, older people would know, as a bulwark against the Soviet Union in the Cold War, right? So in the, in the, in the European sphere, here was the Soviet Union and here was NATO and NATO was the, the umbrella for all the countries and of course it was how the United States helped protect the Europeans against um, the Soviet Union. Um, Craig, you and I had the pleasure of getting to know um, Malcolm Fraser in his final years and he wrote his excellent book, Dangerous Allies, mm. about the United States and the United Kingdom being our dangerous allies. But one of the things he kept insisting is that in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down, he said NATO had no reason for continued existence. Its purpose was fulfilled, right? Instead of it being disbanded, there's, um, maybe we can put the graphics up, but no problem if we can't. We, we do have a, an animation though of how NATO broke its pledge to the Russians and expanded almost up to Russia's border, right? Um, and this was something they said they wouldn't do. They became a bigger outfit and then they went from being defensive to an offensive outfit. So NATO ends up, you know, NATO was um, under its own umbrella in Afghanistan, for instance, which has nothing to do with the North Atlantic. And now there's talk of a, of a NATO in Asia, an Asian NATO, which would be Australia, Japan and the United States, right? And if they had their, 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 their biggest fantasy, India as well. But I can assure you that's never going to happen. Um, but that's NATO anyway. That's what's been happening with NATO up until now. Now, NATO has just said that um, they're working on a new strategic concept for adoption at a summit in Madrid in Spain next June. But, they've, but the defence ministers of the NATO members have already signed off on the core concept. And it's called the Concept for Deterrence and Defence of the Euro-Atlantic Area. And NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg has said that Russia and China are now NATO's targets. Russia and China. So first point, Craig, NATO, there's no guarantee NATO would win a war against Russia. What on earth are they thinking to include China in their principal enemies list? Forget it. The, most, the biggest, most productive economy in the world, China, which it's only weak in one thing, 
nuclear weapons. But Russia, the biggest landmass in the world, has a far weaker economy, but it's pretty powerful in one thing, nuclear weapons, and a pretty significant army and lots of great technology, etc. as well. This is ridiculous. These are people talking themselves into a doomsday scenario, right? Um, one of the things in their mind, and this is their side, not the Russians and the Chinese side, this is their side, is they are explicit that the confrontation they are envisaging will be nuclear. Now, the, the normalisation of nuclear as war as an idea, Craig, is, is this, this is the real madness. Um, on 20th of October, Russia's defence minister, uh, Sergei Sho Shoigu, took note that the USA, quote, has stepped up work to modernise tactical nuclear weapons in their storage sites in Europe. He said, quote, that the engagement of pilots from NATO's non-nuclear member states in drills to practice the use of tactical nuclear weapons was of a particular concern because that's a violation of the Nuclear Weapons Non-Proliferation Treaty. And then German Defence Minister Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who's known as AKK, told German radio on 24th of October, this is, this is, a, this is a politician of, in Germany talking about the Russians, she says, quote, we have to make it very clear to Russia that in the end we are ready to use such means, i.e. nuclear weapons, so that it has a deterrent effect beforehand and nobody gets the idea, for example, over the Baltic or in the Black Sea, to attack NATO partners. That is the core idea of NATO. This is a normalisation of this idea. And what happens is they, they think, well, see, we're, we're warning you, Russia. But what happens on the Russian side? And remember, it's not Russia that has gone around the world invading countries. No. It's not China doing that. Our side... Hour, um, which I, you know, disown <laughs> in this regard. Um, we like to paint these countries as a threat, Craig. Yeah. But they don't have the track record of threat. We're the ones that cook up pretexts to go and invade countries. We are far more dangerous in their mind than they could ever be in our mind. And we're the ones talking about nuclear weapons, right? This is absolutely insane. So um, uh, now by targeting China... Adding China, for, by NATO targeting China, adding China to its list, this advances the agenda of the Asian NATO, as I said, which is bringing Australia and Japan in. And Australia, got, has, Australia now goes to the NATO summits as an observer, right? Are we anywhere near the North Atlantic? Well, I'll tell you how, think of it how ridiculous it is. We've long, we already criticised the concept of Indo-Pacific. You heard this term, Indo-Pacific? Literally two-thirds of the whole world is the Indo-Pacific. And they refer to it as a region. No, it's not a region. It's two-thirds of the globe. The only other th place in the globe is the Atlantic. So you've got the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation now says its, it's, it's jurisdiction is the whole world and it wants to come into the Indo-Pacific. Um, they, uh, they are you know, going out of their way to pick a fight. Yeah, right. right? We've always said and made it very clear that this, these sorts of alliances, NATO and so forth, are not there for strategic purposes other than to protect the global financial system of the West. And this is what's collapsing at the present time. So what you're getting is this driver. More insanity, yep. More insanity to try and protect a global system that's not working. Now, as you said before, China is growing. Look what it's been able to do in the last 20 years in particular, bringing its people out of poverty. It's being attacked like you wouldn't believe in, by the West. And if they brought... It, it, back to your 
what you said earlier about the national bank that, the, that some Americans want to have to invest in their own infrastructure, if they focused on that, they could restore their power far more effectively than any of this warmongering they're trying to do against a powerful economy. Yeah, and that's what this, 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 the, all, and this is insane. The idea is that, oh, we can have a sort of limited nuclear war. This is the yep. insanity of it. These, these, this, is this is so crazy that most of our viewers would find it unbelievable. Well, let me, it's just so crazy. Let me play, a, I want to play a couple of clips um, because one, one illustrates this insanity. Sky News in Australia is owned by Rupert Murdoch, right? M Rupert Murdoch was the, I mean, he's the most political media magnate in the world. And he's just a, he's just a propaganda, a propagandist. And what he does, um, and, and you know, those of us who remember the fight about the Iraq war remember his role. That war was hard enough for, the, for, the Bush, for Bush and, and Tony Blair to get started. They would have had no hope without Murdoch Media's propaganda role. Andrew Bolton, all these people hammering it every day. They just, they just spewed out the lies about WMDs. They had no proof, never had a skerrick of proof. They just spewed it out, right? And they, you know, the Herald Sun and the Telegraph, etc. they just whipped up the public. And, and then when it was all proven to be lies, it was like, oops, right? But they don't care, Robbie. There's, there's a lot of journalists today are very yeah. cynical. They don't care about what they say and their consequences, but why should they? Well, what's, what's now, this, this is, I'm about to play an ad that I watch Sky News a lot. And this is what Sky News is pumping out every hour of every day into Australians' heads. And if you go to Sky News' um, YouTube channel, and, and click on the videos tab and just look at their videos. Just look at the theme about China, right, that runs through it. But anyway, this is a series, they're, they're promoting a series they're going to play next week. Just watch the ad. China does everything with strategic intent. Are the drums of war beating? It has become more aggressive. China's armies are marching. This is highly dangerous territory. We uncover startling insights that reveal why war in our region is no longer unthinkable. Do you believe that war is coming? That is a risk. There will be uh, very serious consequences indeed. China Rising, 8pm Tuesday and Wednesday on Sky News Australia. Now, it doesn't, what you've got, you've got people like Tony Abbott, John Howard, now it's all normalised, war, war, war. Let's start at the idea of war and work our way backwards. Do we really want to be in a war, right? Stop talking ourselves into one. So you've got this organisation that we talk about in Australia called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. They have been whipping up the fight, the idea that the war is going to be over Taiwan. And everyone's now talking about um, Taiwan. Now, we claim when we're doing this, Craig, that we're working in conjunction with partners, Right, that, that's our claim. Well, um, one of the partnerships we have, I just want to point out a fact about it. It's called the Quad, right? Which is Australia, Japan, the United States, and India. And they had a big, they had a tea party at the White House a few weeks ago with uh, Scott Morrison. Um, and this is our partnership. I'll tell you something about the Quad, especially India. Yeah, India is part of the Quad, but the Quad isn't. There's nothing binding on India to be part of the Quad. It's also a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that's called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization because China started it in Shanghai. It's a very big regional grouping of all those countries in Central Asia, right, belong to it. India's a member. It's a signed up member. It's signed the charter. It's a binding charter that's registered at the United Nations. India is bound under that signature to cooperate with China through the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, and that's both economic and 
um, strategic cooperation in that context. That's an actual obligation it has. Its participation in the Quad is just India being polite, right? It is it's literally a TPO. This is not a partnership we're building. Australia and the United States are alone here in trying to pick a fight on, on this issue. Um, now, a few weeks ago, we quoted the former Deputy Ambassador to Beijing, the Australian Deputy Ambassador, John Lander, who wrote an article in our, in our magazine. Um, he pointed out, and other experts have said it as well, that the position that we're talking about now is the, is the, the discussion from our members of parliament and, our, and our people in our government like Howard and, uh, um, yeah, Howard in the video, but people like Peter Dutton and um, uh, Scott Morrison, etc. the people hammering this, it flies in the face of our own official position. We have official position in relation to Taiwan. And our official position is we recognise China as, as China, the People's Republic of China, and we recognise that Taiwan is a province of China. That's been Australia's official position since 1972. That hasn't changed. And the Americans actually, when they talk about this specifically, they say that they don't want to change it, even though some people in America actually want to. Anyway, what I want to play now is Paul Keating, a clip from Paul Keating's speech to the National Press Club this week. Usually what you and I do on this show when we talk about Paul Keating, Craig, is bag him relentlessly. <laughs> However, this is on a foreign policy matter where we think he's absolutely right. More importantly, he went to the press club, it's not in this part of the clip, because he's so concerned at the danger of where this is going and the way the media has, is completely one-sided in all this, he saddled up to intervene in this debate, say, this is, you know, you can't doubt his experience. He was a long-term member of parliament. He had a lot of foreign policy initiatives, including he's the guy who started APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Organisation. Um, and he's intervened with this. And I want to play the clip, just this part of the clip, where he's talking about the Taiwan situation. And, it, and what he says is exactly right, and it's, it reflects also what I said about John Lander. Have a look. They might not be about turning over the international system, but they certainly uh, have become much more aggressive about Taiwan, yeah. uh, and it's seen as a flashpoint of, 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 of a potential flashpoint with the Americans. Yeah. Uh, should should we just accept at some point that uh, that China will take a military or other approach to take over Taiwan? Well, let me. Know. The first point is Taiwan is not a vital Australian interest. Let me repeat that. Taiwan is not a vital Australian interest, you know. We have no alliance with Taipei, none. There's no document you can find. We do not recognise it as a sovereign state, right? And under ANZUS, ANZUS commits us to consult in the event of an attack on US forces, but not an attack by US forces, right? We are committed to ANZUS for an attack on US forces but we are not committed under ANZUS to, to an attack by US forces, which means Australia should not be drawn, in my view, into a military engagement over Taiwan, US-sponsored or otherwise. You know, as Xi Jinping said recently, we'll try and resolve this, you know, harmoniously. You've got to remember this. The KMT, when they drifted over to Taipei, always said, this is China. The Chinese have always said, no, we are China. They all agree they're one China. So when this, look, when Chen Sui Ban was elected president of, of uh, Taiwan in the late 90s, the Chinese had to make a decision about what to do about it. Because the KMT, while, while under Chiang Kai-shek, were at odds with them by 30, 40 years later, 
they'd all agree it was really one China, you know. And, and um, um, uh, 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 what was I going to say to you? I just thought the point. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, that's it. So Chen Chi Chen, then Foreign Minister of China, said about Chen Sui Ban's election, he said, Taiwan can have its own political system. It can have its own parliament. It can have its own flag. It can have its own system of laws. It can have its own economy. It just cannot say it's not Chinese. Now, that was the formula. They can have all of this, but they cannot say it's not Chinese. The only time the Chinese will attack or be involved with Taiwan is if the Americans and the Taiwanese try and declare a change in the status of Taiwan. If Taiwan stays as it is, I think Xi Jinping's general point, and this has been the point of other Chinese presidents, that harmoniously the Chinese people in what would otherwise be a civil war will come to terms with one another. You've got to remember, the trade between the two is enormous. The trade between Taiwan, which is a magnificent economy, and China is huge. You know, I mean, I mean Taiwanese own chunks of you know, Shanghai. I mean, they all own properties, you know. They, I mean, you've got to understand how this place works, you know. But, you know, so, so the thing is, under ANZUS, we have no commitments uh, to be supporting any, any ill-conceived US attempts to try and blow this up. But frankly, I don't think the United States will, you know. So, Craig, we think they're right. Keating, Lando are right. What they're saying is right. The media, since his speech, has been rubbishing that. They're trying to rewrite history. Um, but put that aside, what we're trying to highlight here is the danger. In the time we've got left, just give the, the viewers a few thoughts. How do we step back from the danger? Again, Robbie, this is the question of peace through economic development, first and foremost. That's what we've always promoted. You're not going to have peace or you know, step back from nuclear war unless you recognise that this has been driven by the collapsing financial system of the West. That's the first point of recognition. And then you say, well, how do we deal with that? Well, why don't we go with cooperation? Treat our neighbours as cooperative neighbours instead of enemies. As you said, China yeah. and Russia, they haven't gone out seeking wars. They haven't gone out you know, conquering territories. They just haven't done it. But the West has. And if you have a look at the strategic deployment of nuclear weapons in, around you know, the European countries pointed at Russia and at China... You can then discover that you know it's the West that the aggressors are here. We're part of that, as you know, Malcolm Fraser, uh, you know, pointed out in his book *Dangerous Allies*. We've got to recognise the reality of what we're pushing here and and step back from that by looking for peace for economic development. We should be joining the Belt and Road Initiative with 120 other countries. We should be developing our country first and foremost, and stop spending huge amounts of money on war-based initiatives. Yep which our Australian people don't want. We're actually shifting to a war economy as we speak, which is insane. It's absolutely insane. Look at the, the AUKUS deal, the, the submarine crap, you know, nuclear submarine. Well, who the heck? I mean, the point was made with one of our in, uh, representative uh, members this morning was, you know, China has an enormous industrial capacity to, yeah. to, to build tonnes and tonnes of these nuclear subs. Well, Paul Keating said by the time we get them in 30 or 40 years' time, it'll be like throwing matches at a mountain. And that's right. Because China has an enormous internal industrial cap capability. They can produce nuclear subs very quickly. We won't even have potentially one by 2040. Yep. This is insanity. But it's playing out on the prejudice of the public on a media campaign, as you said, run by Rupert Murdoch to brainwash people that China is the enemy. 
and that is not the case. And we've, you know, we've been looking at this issue of development in of what China's development for, for 30 years. And what we've seen in China is a transformation of their country, which we should be doing inside our own country. That's, that's the thing. It, it, it works. Invest in infrastructure, invest in productive industries, and you too can enjoy the benefits of that. That's right. Um, well, Craig, this has been a rather lengthy uh, episode of our show, but... Um, well, no, these, these foreign policy issues, Robbie, are not they're, simple. No, they're not simple, but they're very serious, and that's why we do focus on them, right? So anyway, thank you very much for your uh, insights and participation. Thanks, Thanks to the uh, viewer um, for tuning in. Remember, as we said last week, we're on a membership drive. If you support what the Citizens Party is doing and you want to become a member, please click on our, that part of our website and sign up straight away. We really could use you as a member right now, so we, we um, appeal to you to do that. But otherwise... Um, uh, stay informed with what we're on about in our campaigns and uh, stay watching the Citizens Report and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.